Thank you. Goodwin family did a great job, didn't they? Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 9 tonight. 1 Corinthians 9. And we're going to be going back to verse number 24. These verses certainly could have been covered with the rest of the chapter, but I thought that they deserved more detailed consideration. So we're going to look at them tonight in a message that I'm titled, Living for God's Approval. Now, sporting events were just as big in Paul's day as they are in our own. Athletic events were looked forward to and attended by the masses. They would have been especially significant to the Corinthians because Corinth was the home to what was called the Ismanian Games, which were second only in importance to the Olympics. The Ismanian Games were held every two years. And in those days, an athlete was held in high regard, and to win in those games was to be recognized and to be held in esteem. These games uh, brought the people from every part of the Mediterranean to compete or to just watch. It was the sporting event of the year, drawing the empire's finest talent. Athletes would compete in foot races, broad jumping, discus throwing, boxing, gymnastics, and even equestrian events. The athletes themselves competed fiercely, each one striving for the coveted Ismanian crown, a wreath of wild celery. Winners also received a lifetime exemption from paying taxes and serving in the military, tuition-free education, and statues of themselves erected along the roadway that led to the site of the games. But the real prize, believe it or not, was the salary wreath awarded to each winner at the end of the games. Now, Paul often used examples from sporting events to make his point. In fact, he does so at least 12 times in his letters, including runners and boxers, gladiators, chariot riders, trophies, all of which associated with the game. And when Paul compared the Christian life to a foot race, it was something that everyone would have understood. Tonight we want to look at what it means to run the Christian race. Verse number 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things, Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul has been talking previously in this chapter about Christian liberty. How it is sometimes necessary to restrict one's liberty for the sake of another Christian. But one cannot 
restrict one's liberty without obviously having self-control. It's one thing to acknowledge the principle of restricting one's liberty, and it is quite another to do it. It's one thing to talk about the principle of liberty. It is another to be able to actually put those principles into practice. First thing I want you to look at me with tonight is the race in verse 24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it? As an athlete pursues a prize, so does a believer, but there are differences. The first difference that we really need to note is that Paul points out that it is unlike athletic events because there's not just one winner. Every Christian can win the prize. So what is the prize? Many are tempted to think the prize is salvation or eternal life. But the prize does not represent salvation. That's not what Paul is discussing, and we will talk about that a little bit later in the message. The prize that Paul is speaking of is a reward that may or may not accompany salvation. In any athletic event, there are always three classes of people involved. There are non-competitors, we would call them spectators. There are the also-ran category, we would call them the failing competitors, those who run but did not win. And of course, there are the winning competitors. Well, we have the race, and the second thing that we note in verse 25, in the first part of that verse, is the runner. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. If an athlete expects to excel, he or she must of necessity be willing to restrict, often severely, their lives. Sleep, Diet, exercise are all determined by the requirements of the training. By comparison, the athlete's disciplined self-control is a rebuke of the half-hearted Christians who did do little or nothing to prepare themselves spiritually. No Christian will be successful in any meaningful way without discipline and self-control. The second part of that verse, he speaks of the reward. Now, they do it for a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable. If athletes would subject themselves to the rigors of training for something so perishable as a crown made out of leaves, how much harder then should a Christian be willing to strive for a prize that is imperishable or lasts forever? So it gives us two things to think about. One is uh, the settling, settling for the perishable. The English scholar C.S. Lewis gave his thoughts on how Christians sometimes have an easy chair attitude toward God's rewards. He said, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards that are promised in the gospel... It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is being offered us. Like an ignorant child who would rather go, go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it means 
be offered a vacation on the beach. We are too easily pleased. There is the opposite, and that is siding on the eternal. Not all Christians will be rewarded for the way that they have lived their lives. We will all appear before the Lord to have our works evaluated. We find it in 2 Corinthians 5.10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Some will appear before the Bema seat judgment expecting a pat on the back from the Lord for the job that they've done. But when their works are tested with fire, all they have left is ashes. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, And each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned... He shall suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet as through fire. If these athletes are willing to strive and discipline themselves for something so impermanent as a wreath made of leaves, how much more should we be willing to strive for the prize that lasts forever? Christians do not run for a short-lived pine wreath or for some short-lived fame, they run in order that they might receive what Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, 8 is a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award on that day. The judgment seat not only concerns reward for past service, but I believe that it will confer assignments for future service to the Lord during the millennial reign and the eternal age. The awards or the rewards conferred by the Lord from his judgment seat are symbolized by the use of the figure of a crown. In 2 Timothy 4, 8, which I just read, Paul wrote that he was looking forward to seeing Jesus because he expected to receive a crown of righteousness. Now, there are two different words in the New Testament translated crown. One is diadem. Diadem was a royal crown. The other was a stephanos. Stephanos means a victor's crown. That was the kind of crown that was given to a runner who had finished the race. Only Jesus will wear the royal crown, the diadem. Our Christian crown will be a stephanos. The crown itself may or may not be valuable. But it is precious because it reveals the approval of the judge who awarded it. Now, the Bible speaks of five crowns that will be awarded to believers who have been faithful. I don't know if these are five literal crowns or five literal categories, but they're certainly worth considering. The first one that is mentioned is the crown of life. It is sometimes called the martyr's crown. We find it in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, and in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10. It's given to those who have given their life for the sake of the gospel. The second kind of crown that's mentioned in the Bible is the crown of glory, sometimes also called the pastor's crown. 
1 Peter 5, 2 through 4, and 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2. It's given to, a, to the faithful preachers and teachers of God's Word. There is a third crown. It's called the soul winner's crown. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19. I think it takes very little explanation to understand what the soul winner's crown, those who have been <clears throat> faithful in winning others to Jesus. There is then the crown of righteousness, which we've already spoken of. It's given to those who live with a constant expectation of the Lord's return and those who live soberly and moral lives in this present world. The last thing that we would mention is called the victor's crown. First uh, Corinthians 9 that we looked at is apparently based on how effective we control the impulses of this body. Revelation 4.10, the believers are seen casting their crowns before the throne. Clearly, the, the crowns do not honor the recipient. They glorify the giver. And finally, there is the price, verses 26 and 27. Therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty, that I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself might become disqualified. Paul now changes his analogy from track and field, from running, to boxing. Thus I fight, he says, not as one who beats the air. He says he's not some shadow boxer who shows off his muscles by poking at the air. And then he goes on to talk about <clears throat> discipline. There's something about us as humans that makes us desire the rewards of accomplishment without having to pay the price. Spiritual growth requires requires the removal from one's life everything that does not aid us in our goal. It involves patiently building in our lives the skills and habits and actions to make that goal reachable. So what are the things that we must be conscious of? What is the prize that price that we must pay for spiritual growth? First is discipline. I'm sorry, first is direction. In a race, it makes a great deal of difference about the direction you run. To win the race, you must stay on the course. In Alice in Wonderland, there's a scene where Alice asked the Cheshire Cat, Would you tell me, please, which way I ought to go from here? And the cat replies, Well, that depends a great deal on where you want to go. I heard a story about a fellow who was traveling out in the country and he got lost and he finally stopped and asked an old fellow beside the road how far it was to a certain town. He replied, well, young man, if you keep going the way you're headed, about 25,000 miles. But if you turn around and go the other way, it's three miles. As Christians, we have to maintain direction in our lives and it does make a difference which direction we are headed the second thing is the discipline. We see it in verse 25 and in verse 27. Verse 25 says, Everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. And verse 27 says, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. So Paul is urging the people at Corinth to take their discipleship seriously. There are many demands placed on our lives. 
Life is full of important, even urgent things. And if we are not careful, our lives are directed by the tyranny of the urgent. Our discipleship is the one area of our lives that will continue to be important even after we die. The word that is translated discipline, in some translations is translated, as in the King James Version, buffet. It literally means to strike under the eye. It means to give somebody a black eye. Paul says he was willing to give his body a black eye in order to bring it into subjection. And some people have taken that idea of bringing their body under subjection and they have just ran completely away from the meaning of it. Down through the centuries, there have been individuals known as flagellants who have literally beat, whipped, and tortured themselves in a misguided attempt to fulfill the idea of bringing their bodies into subjection. Now, Paul didn't see his body as evil, but he recognized that our bodies can be presented either to sin as instruments of wickedness or to God as instruments of righteousness. When Paul says he brings his body into subjection, he's using a word that means make a slave. John MacArthur points out very well by saying, most people, including many Christians, are instead slaves to their bodies. Their bodies tell their minds what to do. Their bodies decide when to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, and so on. An athlete cannot allow that to happen. He follows the training rules, not his body. He runs when he'd rather be resting. He eats a balanced meal when he'd rather have a chocolate sundae. He goes to bed when he'd rather stay up. He gets up early to train when he'd rather stay in bed. An athlete leads his body, he does not follow it. It is his slave, not the other way around. I think that is what Paul was describing. But without direction and without discipline, there will be disqualification. This verse bothered me for a long, long time. Lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul sees himself both as the herald of the game. That's the person who announces the rules, who makes sure that the participants are in the right place, and he keeps everything in line. Here, he again makes an analogy with the Ismanian games because he sees himself not only as the herald of that game, but also as a participant in that game. A contestant who failed to meet the training requirements was disqualified. He could never run, much less win. Paul didn't want to spend his whole life heralding the requirements of Christianity to others and then be disqualified for not meeting the requirements himself. It seems especially menacing to me in the King James Version where disqualified is translated castaway. What did Paul mean by the term disqualified or castaway? 
To be disqualified simply means disapproved. It means not standing the test. One commentator takes this view when he says, Paul clearly envisions the possibility that notwithstanding his work as a preacher, he might himself fall from grace and be rejected. His conversion, his baptism, his call to apostleship, his service in the gospel do not guarantee his eternal salvation. Well, he is is right, at least as far as when he says that none of those things are a guarantee of salvation. Paul's salvation rested, as yours and mine does, only on the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Paul says in his letter to the Romans, in Romans chapter 8 and verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who does not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us, how shall he not not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors, Through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The prize does not represent salvation. Salvation, according to the New Testament, is a free gift. The prize is an earned reward. So if Paul was not afraid of losing his salvation, what was he afraid of? Let me offer you a few thoughts. I know that at times Paul suffered from discouragement and depression. Paul's fear could have been that at some point he might give in to discouragement and give up. It could be, too, that disqualified could mean ineligible to receive a reward. Doesn't mean he's lost, but he no longer is capable of receiving a reward. Perhaps Paul was afraid that he would come to the end of his life and find out that his Christian service was done in the flesh and for his own glory. Another thought is, what happens when an athlete is disqualified? It is a fearful reality that if one is not careful and does not commit themselves to a disciplined lifestyle, that they could be taken out of the game. Now, Paul goes on to list four specific disqualifying sins, and we'll be looking at those next time because we'll find them in the first part of chapter 10. We know that this is important because we see the connecting word in verse 1 of chapter 10 that is for. The connection 
to the warning. So we find that Paul identifies four things. Idolatry, immorality, testing God, and grumbling against God. Well, I think that most Christians start out in the faith with great enthusiasm and devotion. They train carefully. They read their Bible and they pray and they're faithful to the Lord's house, but at some point they get tired of the effort and they slip. And before long, they, are, they can be disqualified as effective witnesses. The concerns of this life and the pressures of this world can hinder our spiritual lives. Let me close with this illustration. Kansas had a crack mile relay team. Everyone thought that the forerunners would set a new indoor record. And as expected, the team pulled ahead as the first runner passed the baton to the second quarter miler. Then it happened. The second runner hit the baton with his thigh just before the pass to the third man. The bamboo stick bounced off the track and into the dirt infield. The Kansas runner hurried after it as the opposing team members rushed on by. Upon retrieving the baton, he started after the competition, but he soon realized that his efforts were futile. The disheartened runner pulled into the infield, and the anchor man, the fastest man on the team, never got to run at all. Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, run the race with endurance that is set before us. He wasn't talking about a simple relay. He was talking about a lifetime marathon. Should you grow weary and lose an opportunity to pass on the gospel, it may be well that the fastest runner will never get an opportunity to run at all because we fail to pass the baton. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your presence with us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us, even when we prove ourselves not to be faithful. Lord, I thank you for these who are here tonight evidence of their own faithfulness to the church and to you. I pray for your blessings on them, and I pray in some way some of the things that they've heard tonight might be an encouragement to them. I pray that we might see it as an opportunity to think about that fresh start that we talked about this morning, that we might be able to start on as individuals. Father, I pray that you'd have your way and your will in our invitation, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.